Good morning, Central Church. It's great to see you this morning. If you're watching us online this morning, whether it's Facebook Live or our, our website, we're so glad you're joining us, whatever your circumstances are, or if you're on vacation, thanks for tuning in. And all of you that are in Oakwood Chapel this morning in Overflow, God bless you. It's great to see you this morning. And we have a lot of families just out in the concourse, spread out, uh, doing family worship out there. Man, thanks for being here today. And all of you that are here live, welcome. Uh, take out the, the white bulletin insert that you got on the way in. And if you have a prayer need today, there's a section where you can write your prayer request down. You can either make it confidential or for us to send out to people in the church to pray. Um, but we wanna pray for you. Uh, and so write that down when you leave this morning. <clears throat> Drop it in one of the boxes at the exits, and we'll get that on the prayer list for you. Uh, we are facing some challenges with space, as you can see, in this service, which is very full. Uh, our 11 o'clock service is, is very full as well. Uh, and so we're making some changes to try to accommodate that growth. Take a look. Hey Central family, God continues to reach people through Central with more and more men, women, and children building a relationship with Jesus through our ministry. We're humbled by the growth God continues to bring, but with that growth comes increasing challenges. As you're probably aware, our 930 service is now beyond capacity. Each week we have roughly 100 people in overflow worship in Oakwood Chapel. Our 11 o'clock service isn't far behind. Finding space for adult worship and kids ministry is increasingly difficult. So here's how we're approaching this issue. Because we're only utilizing about 55 to 60% of our space in the worship center during our four services, we've postponed the idea of building an addition with 600 more seats. We're not gonna be ready for that until we're filling 75 to 80% of our seating capacity. Also, for those of you who may not be aware of our church history, Major building projects and going into debt has led to disagreements and even major division in the church. And right now, we just don't want that. So what does that mean? For now, it means evening out our attendance during our four services. The first step is creating service times which are more accommodating to our entire church family. We hope to accomplish this by moving the eight o'clock service to 8.30 a.m. A later start will hopefully be more attractive to all ages. The 9.30 service will move to 9.45 a.m. and the 11 o'clock service will move to 11.15 a.m. We're hoping this makes all three service times on Sunday equally attractive. We're also moving to 60-minute services instead of 70. We feel we can do this without losing the quality of either our preaching or worship ministry. We're also committed to providing childcare during our Saturday 5 p.m. service for children up to five years old. Hopefully this will make Saturday services even more attractive to young families. And finally, we're making efforts to improve our weekend parking situation, to enlarge our children's ministry space, and to implement upgrades in our Oakwood Chapel to make our overflow service an even better experience. The plan is to implement these service time changes by March 5th and 6th. We know God is powerfully moving at Central. And we're excited about finding creative solutions to accommodate that growth. Thanks for partnering with us as we bring God's kingdom to our city.
again, how, how that relates to this service is if the 8.30 service is now more doable than an eight o'clock service, we would just encourage folks to maybe make that shift from this service to the 8.30 service if that's possible. Um, doesn't help us a ton if you shift to the 11.15 service because that service is pretty full as well. All right, take out your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning. Turn to Psalms, Psalm 8, the eighth Psalm. We're gonna be there in just a minute. The series is called When. It's a study in Psalms, and it's called When because each individual Psalm, it tells us what to do when we face certain situations in life. And Psalm 8 is gonna help us understand what to do when we feel insignificant or unimportant. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for the power of Scripture. We thank you for its truth. We pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would open our hearts and open our minds. Help us to understand the truth that we're reading. Help us to apply it in our lives, God, that that you might receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, everyone wants to be significant in life. Everyone, the, the definition of significance uh, what we're going to put it up here is uh, the, the quality of, uh, of having importance, being important. It's, it's notable worth or influence. And, and everyone wants the feeling of being valuable, of being important, of being, of being worthwhile in life. Uh, it, it's why teachers teach. It's why nurses nurse. It's why doctors dock. That's what they do because they want to make a difference in life. Nobody wants people to stand up at their funeral and get up and say, I don't really remember anything about their life, right? I mean, you want people to get up there and say, what an impact you had on them, how how important you were to their growth and development or something along those lines. No one wants to be insignificant, unnoticed, unknown, and unimportant in life. But but the, the question is, where do we seek significance? How do we define significance? Where, where do we look to be significant in our lives? And a lot of times we look to, to physical things like possessions. Um, so, so we buy fancy cars. We, we buy huge houses that maybe we don't need because we feel like you know, people will look at us and go, wow, they, they've got that car. Wow, they've got that, that house. They, they, they must be really important or the amount of money that we have or or we wear oakley sunglasses or calvin klein sweaters or or tommy shirts whatever it is because now i'm a big deal right i mean i feel like a big deal when i wear this kind of stuff yet jesus said a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions in other words your value your your significance your, your worth isn't wrapped up in things People also seek significance in, in titles or positions. If I just had that position in my company, if I just had that position in my organization, then I'd really be significant. If I had more authority, then I'd really, I'd really be important. Or, or if I had a title before my name, if I had MRS before my name, then I'd really be an important woman. If I, if I had doctor before my name, then, I, then I'm really significant. And we, we try to find these positions and, and titles, and all of those are fake. They're not genuine. They're, they're not real. They, they, make, they may give us a temporary sense of importance, but they're not lasting. And God wants to give us genuine significance and importance 
in life. And sometimes we feel insignificant because we compare ourselves to other people. And if you compare yourself to someone that has more, bigger house, nicer car, cooler, more expensive shades, you're gonna feel less important. Or someone with, with a bigger title than you, you're gonna feel less significant. When I hear guys like Dr. Barry Black or, or Andy Stanley, when I hear those guys preach, it, it really makes me feel in, insignificant. It's like, I, I, in my mind I say, that, that's the standard of significance for preachers. And, and everything else is below that. And, and so when I watch those guys, I don't, I don't feel very significant. Now, I could, I could go online and find some really horrible preacher and compare myself to him and go, I'm kind of a big deal, right? It just depends on who you're comparing yourself to. But we can feel insignificant if we compare ourselves to the wrong person. Like the mayor of Whoville in Horton Here's a Who, right? When he compares his little world to the world that Horton lives in. Take a look. Hello. Who's there? Um, this is the mayor. <laughs> I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. I knew there was life on this speck. This speck? What speck? Well, um, I don't exactly know how to tell you this, but you're living on a speck. Well, I hate to disagree with you, oh, voice from the drain pipe, but I live in Whoville. Well, then, Whoville's a speck. <laughs> right, okay, seriously, who is this? Is this Bert from accounting? Uh, no, this is Horton. I'm an elephant. Okay, Horton, fake name. Where are you? Well, from where you're standing, I guess I'm in the sky. Compared to you, I'm enormous, which is saying something, because I've slimmed down quite a bit. I swim. <laughs> Your whole world fits on a flower in my world. Oh, man, this is even pushing it for you, Bert. Don't believe me? Watch what happens when I put you in the shade. This is absolutely impossible. Dark. Uh, light. Dark. Light. Huh. Dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light. Ooh, don't you see? We're in the middle of some kind of amazing cosmic convergence. Two vastly different worlds, miraculously crossing paths. Mine colossal! Yours minuscule, yet somehow we've managed to make contact. If you think about it, it's pretty amazing. Is everything okay down there? Ooh. I don't know. You tell me. You're the one holding the speck. I'm the one holding the speck. <gasps> you ever feel like a speck on a flower? You know, the mayor of Whoville was, was pretty pompous until he realized there was another world that was bigger than his world, and then the thing changed, and he didn't feel so significant anymore. You know, that, that was true of David in Psalm 8. Uh, in Psalm 8, David felt like a speck on a flower. Let me give you a little background to our text this morning before we read it. Psalm 8 was probably a psalm written by David in his early days, uh, probably when he was still a shepherd overseeing his father's uh, flock uh, somewhere in near Jerusalem. Um, David's out, uh, whether he's laying his head down to go to sleep at night or whether he's walking around watching the flock, but he, but he looks into the sky at night. The, the brilliance of the Middle Eastern sky with no natural lighting around 
the stars, the planets, the Milky Way, the galaxy. And as he sees the splendor of creation, he feels pretty insignificant on his own. Psalm 8, verse 1. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version this morning. O Lord, our Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You who have displayed your splendor or your glory above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. David says, when I consider your heavens, the the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, what am I that you think of him and the son of man that you are concerned about him? Yet you've made man a little lower than deities and you crown him with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David bookends verse one and verse nine with that phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I wanna share three quick thoughts this morning about, about what we can do when we feel insignificant in life. And the first is this. We need to consider the power of God's name. David considered the power of God's name. So he begins in verse one with this. Lord, our Lord. Now, whenever you see the word Lord, all caps, capitalized, all letters, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. That was the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses. Uh, it's, it's who he is, the self-sufficient God, the self-existing one. Um, it's God in all of his power. So David begins by saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai. Adonai is another word for Lord or master or maker uh, that was used in Hebrew. So Yahweh, our, our maker, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He begins with the name of the Lord, Yahweh, And then he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Then he says, you who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Now David is looking at the stars and the planets and the galaxy and all the brilliance above him. But he's actually looking beyond it. He's actually looking beyond it to the God who created it. Because he says, you whose whose splendor is, is above the heavens above what I'm seeing. He's he's actually asking this question, what power must God possess if he created all of this? How, How majestic must God be if what I'm seeing he created? And David, David just marvels at that as he considers the power of this invisible God, the one behind creation. Now David doesn't know it, But the planet that he is standing on, because he didn't have the resources to measure or calculate the the, the weight of the earth, but David is standing on a planet that weighs 5,842 quintillion tons, not pounds, quintillion tons. One quintillion 
is one with 18 zeros after it. One of those times 5,842, that's the weight of this massive planet on which David was standing. Now, let's take it a little farther. You can fit 1,300 Earths, with all the, the massiveness I just shared, 1,300 Earths in one Jupiter. 1,300 of our planet, as big as it is, into one Jupiter. And you can fit 1,000 Jupiters into our sun. 1,000 Jupiters. Or 1.3 million Earths into the sun. Can you imagine that? D David is in awe. So, so the, the sun is a star, right? It's a star in our solar system. NASA estimates that there are at least 100 billion planets just in our galaxy, just in the Milky Way. 100 billion planets and anywhere from 100 billion to 400 billion stars just in our galaxy. Suns. Now remember how big our sun is? A thousand Jupiters? 400 billion of those in just the Milky Way. David is staring at that and, and thinking about the incredible power, power excuse me, of God. And David, David knows two things. The first thing David knows from Scripture is that God created all of that from nothing. Before anything existed, God created that. And the second thing David knows is that God not only created everything from nothing, but he upholds everything in creation just by his word. Here's a scripture that speak of that. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens, stars, planets, skies, and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Ex nihilo in the Hebrew, void. There was nothing there. And darkness covered the deep waters. Now, you read that and you go, wait, I thought you said there was nothing there. It was water. Well, that's true. But we don't know when the water got there. We don't know necessarily all of the order of creation. But we do know from the New Testament uh, that in, in John chapter 1, verse 3, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that nothing was created that Jesus didn't create. And water is created. So, so this was created when in the order of things, we, we don't know, maybe he created the water first and then went about creating everything else. It doesn't matter, water is created and God created it. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God created something from nothing and then God upholds everything. Uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 17, he, Jesus, existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Jesus holds everything you see in the natural world together. Hebrews 1, 3, uh, the Son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command or by his word. So David knows those, those two things. And so what's going through David's mind as he considers all of that? Well, he knows that, that this God created everything from nothing and he, and he knows that God upholds the entire universe just by his word. And David understands that if God can do that, there's nothing God can't do in my life, amen? He looks at this incredible, brilliant galaxy, and he's thinking about God creating that by his word. And we think about our lives and the small details of our lives, and we think God couldn't do that. 
God, God can't work in my child's life. God can't work in my marriage. God can't work in my health. God can't work in these situations. God can't fix a relationship. God can't, God can't, God can't. David's sitting there saying, wait a sec, you don't know that God. He created everything from nothing and he upholds everything by the word of his power. What can't he do in your life? Nothing's impossible with God. And then David takes it a step further. And he says, this God, this covenant God, Yahweh, that I'm in relationship with, he thinks about me all the time and he wants to step into the details of my life. Can you imagine that? This God that created 400 billion stars in one galaxy and upholds them with his power, thinks about you all the time and wants to step into the details of your life. So we come to the core of this psalm, the heart of the psalm, which is verses three and four. David's feeling of insignificance. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, it's interesting, he calls it the work of his fingers, like nothing, and he, and he brings into existence everything. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. Then he says, what, what is man, what am I? That you think of him, that you consider him or the son of man, that you are concerned about him or, or want to visit him. David's mind is blown. Like he sees this God whose glory is displayed above the heavens, who the God behind creation created everything from nothing and upholds everything with his power, thinks about him all the time. You know, as you go through the Psalms, you're gonna see verses that say things like David says, God, your thoughts to me are, are numberless. They're, they're, you can't even number the, the thoughts that God has toward you. He's constantly thinking about you and your life and your circumstances, and he wants to step into the details of your life. He wants to visit you. That's what that text says. He wants to visit you. Right. Alan Ross says this about that word, the word visit usually indicates divine intervention that changes the destiny of people. God coming into a situation and changing it. No matter how frail or insignificant people may seem, God intervenes in their lives to set in motion the plan that he has for them. That's what God wants to do in your life. This God who's created everything and upholds everything simply with his word wants to step into your life, change the course of your destiny and give you significance. See, you don't have significance because of Oakley glasses and a Calvin Klein sweater and a Tommy shirt. You have significance because the God who created everything from nothing, the God who upholds everything by his word of power, thinks about you all the time and wants to step into the details of your life. You're a big deal, amen? The second thing that I see in terms of, of what we should do when we feel insignificant is consider the power of our praise. Consider the power of our praise. Verse two almost seems to not fit with this psalm, but it does. Here's what David said in verse two. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Now, when David speaks of infants and nursing babies, he's talking about the least significant people on the planet. The ones that, that can't do anything for themselves. They're dependent on people caring for them. So this would be the, le the weakest, the least significant. From the mouths of infants and nursing, the least significant, you have ordained or established strength because of their enemies, your enemies, to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. Another, another version says, to silence the enemy and to avenge their works or to nullify their works. Okay, God has established strength. Go, go back. 
Go back. God has established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. Now Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2 in Matthew 21, 15 and 16 when he's in the temple. Listen to this. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things Jesus had done, the children in the temple were running around and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They were praising Jesus. Well, the leaders became indignant and they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, do you remember Psalm 8 too? What, what they said in Psalm 8 too? From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared what? Praise. Wait, that's not the word David used. David said strength. Jesus says you have prepared praise for yourself. Now remember, the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. The, the New Testament gives deeper revelation of Old Testament meaning. And Jesus intentionally uses the word praise out of the mouth of the, the insignificant. You have ordained or established praise to silence the enemy, to cause the activity of the enemy to come to nothing. Now we're talking about praise in a spiritual sense and we're talking about spiritual enemies, not physical enemies. There, there is something supernatural that happens when we praise the Lord. Something that we can't see in the spiritual realm. You have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence your foes and to, to stop their work in your life. Now why does that happen? How does praise have an impact on the spiritual life that we're living? Well, Psalm 22.3 says that when we praise God, you are holy God, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. When, when Israel praised the Lord, it created a spiritual throne upon which God sat. A throne is a place of authority. A throne is a place of power. Uh, the throne was the place where God began to execute his judgment. God began to execute his authority. So when a king sat on his throne, he had ultimate authority over all the people and all the enemies. So when we, when we praise the Lord, it creates a spiritual throne upon which Jesus comes and sits and begins to drive back and do battle against our enemies. Come on, somebody. So you're going through a spiritual battle. How do you respond to that spiritual conflict? How do you respond to that spiritual battle? Jesus said, I've ordained praise because of your enemies to cause the work of the enemy to cease in your life. Jesus comes and sits on the throne of your life and begins to wreak havoc on the enemy. Now, now you think about when you're going through tough times, what do you do? What comes out of your mouth? When you're angry or frustrated, what comes out of your mouth? When things aren't going your way, what comes out of your mouth? Usually not praise first, right? What comes out first? Complaining, murmuring, judging, criticism, right? I often wonder if the reverse is true of this principle of when we praise the Lord, our praise becomes a throne upon which he sits and begins to exercise his influence. I wonder if the same reverse is true with the evil one when cursing and judgment and other things come out of our mouths, if we create a platform or a place for Satan to begin to bring influence in our lives. Why do I say that? Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, be angry but don't sin, right? He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give Satan a platform. Your anger can give Satan a platform. And then he goes on and talks about your words. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, only a word that's good for edification. According to the need of the, what if our words created a throne either for Jesus or Satan? 
What if our, our lives began to be influenced by our words creating a throne for one of those two? I would rather have Jesus sitting on the throne, amen? amen. Praise creates a throne from which God begins to work in a greater way in our lives. I'm, I'm putting a few things on the board. How, how does this happen? Well, praise puts our heart in a posture of surrender. When you're truly praising him, you're surrendering your life. You're saying, God, you are God and I'm not. And I surrender my heart to your will. That, that's what should be happening in worship and in praise. It's a great place to be because you're surrendering to the will of God in that moment. Praise is an invitation for Jesus to come and rule. Lord, I recognize you're, you're my king. Come, Lord, and, and, and have your way in my life. Praise begins to create that throne. The third thing is, It's in your bulletin, there we go. Praise declares Satan's defeat. Anytime we sing about the cross, anytime we sing about the blood of Jesus, anytime we sing about the resurrection, anytime we, we praise God for what he's done, it's a declaration of Satan's defeat. When you, when you sing about the blood of Christ, you're singing about the defeat of Satan. It was the shed blood of Jesus that was his defeat. When you sing about the resurrection, you're singing about the validation God gave to the cross to defeat the enemy once and for all. So as we praise him and begin to declare the victory of Jesus over the evil one, man, I believe God enforces our praise with his power and reminds the enemy that he is defeated in our lives. And, and then the last thing, Satan hates it when people praise Jesus. Is there anybody in your life you don't like? You just, they did something to hurt you or to bother you? You don't like them. And if you ever hear somebody else saying good things about them, doesn't that just bug you? Doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? When someone you don't like is spoken well of by someone else, you're like, no, 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 I need to tell you the real deal about them, right? Because it bothers you when they get praise. And remember, Satan wants our praise. Satan wants our attention. Satan wants us to give him glory. So when you give your glory to Jesus, I, he can't stand that. I don't even think he can, he can stand to be around people when they're praising the Lord. It just irritates him that much. There's something supernatural. Why do we have significance? Because when we praise the one who saved us, he steps into our world and begins to exercise his authority. You are a big deal. And when you express your love and devotion to Jesus, he steps in and begins to work in a powerful way in your life. And the last thing is when we feel insignificant, I think we need to consider the power of our purpose. The power of our purpose. Verses five through eight. Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than deities or God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You've made him rule over the works of your hands. Now listen, we, are to, we were to rule over creation. Creation was created for us, animals, plants, all of that was created for humanity, not the other way around. We don't serve animals. You have put everything under his feet, sheep, oxen, all the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. David is reminded that God has given him charge, just like over the lambs that he was tending. God has given mankind charge over the natural world. But Jesus comes along and he says, not only have I given you charge over the natural world, but I've given you spiritual responsibility. When Jesus was about to go back to heaven, the last words he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 are this. Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I, I have a new mission for you. I, I've received all authority. I'm giving you authority to go 
and make disciples of the nations, to go and lead other people to Jesus. Now Jesus says this powerfully in Matthew chapter four, verse 19, with, with the disciples who were fishermen. Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John who were fishermen by trade, Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of what? Fishers of what? Not fish, they were already fishers of fish. They already had natural responsibilities. They were already tending to the things that were in their, their realm of responsibility. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new responsibility. I'm gonna make you fishers of men. I'm gonna put a pond in your life and I'm gonna fill it with fish and you're responsible. You're responsible to share the love of Jesus with the fish. It's called oikos. It's called your relational world and God has given you a pond. And he wants you to be a fisher of men. Yes, you have natural responsibilities as you go through your day, but you also have a spiritual responsibility to share the love of Jesus with the fish in your pond. How are you doing with that? See, why do I have significance? I have significance because every day when I roll out of bed in the morning, I not only have, have natural responsibilities, but I have spiritual responsibilities given to me by God. I have a pond that I'm in, and I have to fish in that pond. I have to love people, serve people, care about them, share my story with them, encourage them toward a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, I will make you a fisher of men. You're a big deal. Jesus left earth and all of the work that needed to be, done, he, to be done, he trusted you. He said, I'm making you a fisher of men. And then he gives you a pond, and then he puts fish in it. And the question is, what are you doing with the pond? Would you stand with me this morning? We're gonna just take a minute and end with a little bit of praise. I don't know what your spiritual battle is today. I, I don't know what the enemy's doing in your life. But I know this, Jesus is more powerful. And I also know this, when we genuinely and sincerely and with authenticity worship Christ from our hearts and surrender to him, a throne is established in our lives through our praise on which Jesus sits and begins to do battle for us. All right, church, if there's power in our praise, let's give him some praise, amen? Let's sing this. Oh, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of love, majesty, oh, praise forever to the King of We give my praise, oh, praise the Creation cry. 
let praise, let praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety. Let it rise, let praise arise. We sing your name in the dark and it changes everything. We sing, we sing with all we are and we claim your This is, this is what living looks like, this is what freedom feels like, this is what heaven sounds like, every voice singing out to hell, this is what living looks like, this is what freedom feels like, this is what heaven sounds like, we praise you, we praise you, this is what living looks like, this is what freedom feels like. from which Christ can rule and reign. You have significance because the God who created everything from nothing and upholds everything by the word of his power thinks about you all the time and wants to step into your life. You have significance because when you praise the one who saved you, Jesus steps into your world and begins to reign and exercises power. And you have significance because every day when you roll out of bed in the morning, you have a divine purpose and a divine plan to bring people to Christ. 
commissioned by Jesus. David, I hope we can as well, looked into the heavens and said, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, amen? Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we're gonna have some folks up here to pray with you. Don't leave until you get prayer. Man, have a great, great day. God bless you.